Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Different cultures have different beauty standards. In Western society, skincare also can be obsessive. There's cleanser, toner, moisturizer, and, and when are you supposed to exfoliate? Today, where we live, we talk about beauty standards and the influencers who are making many people spend a whole lot of money to look a certain way. Coming up, freelance beauty journalist Jessica Defino joins us. She was an industry insider until she decided to call out the, in her words, BS. Defino now writes the newsletter Unpublishable. As she describes it, it's a newsletter for her most unpublishable pitches, the beauty critical content publications can't, won't, or don't cover. Think about the type of beauty products you buy. What influences you? You can join us, share a comment on Facebook, or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Jessica Defino joins us now on Zoom. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I guess to start off, when did you really get interested in, in beauty culture, so much so that you worked in the industry? Yes, I mean, I think I have been obsessed by beauty and by skincare for almost my whole life. You know, starting at maybe age 14, I started to have acne and started visiting dermatologists. I was put on every product and prescription and pill you could possibly imagine for my skin. Um, And yeah, it sort of triggered this lifelong obsession. But in 2015, I started working for the Kardashians. I started writing for their apps. And I think that really immersed me in beauty culture uh, more deeply than I had ever been immersed in it before. So you mentioned you were working for their apps. So describe uh, what the work entailed, Jessica. Sure. The apps were basically every sister, there are five Kardashian-Jenner sisters, had their own apps that produced um, three pieces of content per day, normally about their beauty and fashion choices. So I was helping to create and write that content. So for instance, there would be a roundup of like mascaras that Khloe Kardashian loved, or a roundup of shapewear that Kim Kardashian was wearing underneath her outfits, things like that. And we know the Kardashians are big time influencers. (laughs) And so uh, because uh, you were behind the scenes and you were thinking about the beauty standards uh, that were getting put out there and the way that um, products were marketed, you also saw that there was a lot of harm being done. Can you describe that? Sure. I think the longer that I worked there, the more I realized that the standards that the sisters were setting and then selling to their followers through the apps via product promotions and brands that they had started were physically impossible to meet, even for the sisters. So for instance, um, on Kylie Jenner's apps, we would have roundups on how to overline your lips and what lip liners to use and what lipsticks to use and selling the Kylie lip kits. Meanwhile, Kylie's lips looked like that because of cosmetic injections. Um, On Kim's app, there would be 
all of this content about what skincare she used to get her skin that way. Meanwhile, the apps employed a full-time Photoshop artist to edit every image that was put out to the public. So I started to see how even celebrities don't live up to the beauty standard that they're setting. And it creates these really impossible expectations for the average person who thinks I can look like that if only I buy the right product or if only I get a Botox injection or if only I could get plastic surgery. Um, and the truth is, is that these standards are impossible to live up to even for someone like the Kardashians. So there's a lot of uh, deception, of course, uh, to sell particular products. But when we think about, you know, this, uh, these standards that are put out there and how it's not achievable for people, you know, maybe who want to look a certain way that can, you know, be also harmful to someone's mental health, Jessica. For sure. I think that was my, that is sort of my biggest realization in all of this. And part of why I'm so passionate about dismantling beauty standards and disrupting beauty culture is because so often these standards are sold to us as a form of empowerment, or you're told, you know, this product will make you confident. You know, there are literally products out there called confidence in a cream or self-esteem serum. So we really think that by achieving the standard of beauty, we're going to be happier. We're going to be better people. We're going to feel worthy. And the data just does not bear that out. The pressure to adhere to this impossible standard is associated with anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia, facial dysmorphia, eating disorder, self-harm, and even suicide. So we're sold this idea that we're going to be more confident and the exact opposite thing happens. Hmm. Again, you can join us. We're talking to beauty journalist Jessica Defino, who writes the unpublishable newsletter. It's the beauty industry's least favorite newsletter. It's because Jessica takes a critical look at uh, the standards that are put out there, the culture uh, surrounding, you know, how we're told to look a certain way, what products to use. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, when you'd mentioned earlier that uh, you had skincare issues, and so I'm, I'm wondering even when you're working in this job, how that may have triggered skin issues and, and how that, you know, started you on this, uh, um, this road of trying different products and the cost, especially Jessica. Mm -hmm. That it was a, I called beauty my second job when I was working on the Kardashian apps because the pressure to look a certain way was so high and it required quite an investment of time, of money, of effort, of headspace. Um, and yeah, which was very damaging. But I do think that being in that environment uh, was the first time that I had been exposed to how the industry, the beauty industry specifically really works um, and the beauty media in particular. So the people who write about beauty products for a living are often gifted these products by brands. Brands will send you thousands of dollars worth of lipsticks and serums and toners and face masks per week in the hopes that you will try the product and write about it. Um, so I had started receiving all of these very expensive, very luxurious skincare products for free. And I started using them and I expected to have, you know, a great reaction. I expected my skin to finally clear up after all of these years because I was finally using the good stuff. Um, and what happened was the opposite. Um, it actually really damaged my skin because I was doing too much and it caused something called dermatitis. So I went to my dermatologist to treat the dermatitis and was put on topical steroids, which is a pretty extreme treatment. 
eventually the topical steroids triggered something called skin atrophy, which is basically the organ atrophies. It stops functioning on its own. It's not able to do the things that it's supposed to do, um, which caused a lot of issues for me, a lot of pain and a lot of money trying to find something that would work. And eventually I was like, I've tried everything, but I haven't tried nothing. (laughs) Let me just stop using everything and see what happens. Um, and that was the the most extreme period of healing that my skin had experienced since 14 years old was getting off all of the products. Mm. And your skin's looking great now? What? Your skin's looking great now after that healing process? My skin has finally healed. And right. it started this like period of discovery for me where I was like, what's happening? Why is my skin working with nothing? This counteracts everything I've ever heard in the beauty industry. Um, and that really sort of kickstarted this passion for me to discover why we became so dependent on products in the first place. Yeah. And you think about a lot of the products that are, are stripping, uh, you know, the, the essential, the natural oils in the skin that, you know, can cause, uh, you know, all these, uh, these impacts, as you mentioned, after, you know, you trying so many different things. Again, you can join us as we talk about the beauty industry, the standards that are put out there, and a lot of the false advertising uh, for making people think they need to buy certain products to look a certain way. Uh, when you were talking about the Kardashians, you know, the five Kardashian Jenner sisters for for those who follow these reality stars who really have become you know icons uh, when we think about Kim Kardashian especially what is she worth now do we know <laughs> oh she's a billionaire she wow. officially became a billionaire during the pandemic as we have seen happen so many times and when we think about the the things that she puts out there, uh, whether they're products that people should use that, of course, you know, are products that she's, uh, um, have her name attached to them. It's making her money. But some of the even more, more ridiculous things that she talks about, you know, the, the idea that she is such an influencer. Can you tell us more about her? Sure. I think um, what's important to keep in mind with Kim Kardashian and similar influencers is that beauty is their product and it benefits somebody like Kim Kardashian to set a really high standard that keeps her fans and her followers and just general consumers um, consuming and consumed by beauty. Um, So you can basically look at the product lines that she has put out. You know, she has her makeup line, she has her skincare line, she has shapewear for, you know, making your body look slimmer and trimmer. Um, those are the standards that she's setting. And then she is directly profiting off of that. So she's profiting off of the harm of beauty culture. Um, And I think that's something that's really not talked about enough because so often we look at women in business, especially in the beauty business, and we say like, oh, wow, this is a woman doing great things. Like an entrepreneur, she's she's making money. She's setting an example. Um, but when that example is making billions of dollars off of other people's suffering, we really need to look more critically at that. And something that I think she said recently uh, about her her new skin, uh, high end skincare product and treatment. Uh, you know, the, the quote that she. That she, how did she talk about um, aging and what she would do if she could look a certain way? <laughs> this was the first line of the New York Times article about her skincare line was she said that she would eat poop every day if it made her look younger. And 
oh my gosh, I almost couldn't believe what I was reading. <laughs> and then at the same time, I was like, well, of course, this is how beauty culture makes us feel. It makes us believe beauty is the most important thing we can have in the world and that beauty is youth. Um, so while the quote was so ridiculous, I do think that there are probably a lot of people out there who feel similarly that they would do almost anything in order to look younger because that is what our culture tells us is beautiful and tells us is, is something that makes us worthy. You can join us, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Valentina is calling in from Farmington. Valentina, what did you want to share? Hi, um, I was just going to share that as a woman of color, um, because I guess my, I've always been so far from what the beauty standards are, (laughs) Um, you know, starting with the fact that the beauty standard was not brown skin, and I knew I wasn't going to meet that. I feel it's made it a little easier for me to not hold that as a standard. Um, And for women of color in general, if you even look at JLo, like I say to my kids now that it was when I was in high school that having a big butt became like a thing that you could be proud of. Um, Previously, that was just yet another way in which women of color didn't meet the standard. It meant we were fat, right? (laughs) Um, So, I mean, the standard has been a mess for so long. And even as far as Kim Kardashian and that beauty culture, you know, on the one hand, I wish that she could use some of the power she has in the same way that, you know, she tries to make changes with uh, criminal justice. Like, I wish she would try to change the beauty standards because the fact is that she wouldn't be where she is right now if the beauty standards hadn't changed a little bit already. She would just be another woman considered fat because she has, because she's curvy. Um, And at the same time, but that first line from the New York Times article, um, (laughs) while it's crazy, I was glad that it was there because like it's putting the crazy on display. And I'm, I'm hoping that it's crazy enough that people can start to see that, like, it makes, it makes no sense and it's harmful. And the amount of time and energy and resources that women devote to trying to attain these unachievable standards, like, if we put that amount of time and energy and resources into the other areas of our lives, like, how many of us would have a PhD or an MD <laughs> or a JD? It's just, it's, it's such a waste of resources and not just for women, but like for the planet. It really is. Well, Valentina, thank you so much for those excellent points uh, that you raised. Uh, Jessica, did you want to respond? I think those are, those are great points. And those are things that I do try to highlight in my work. Um, a lot of the time is that this the standard of beauty is always moving. It is a moving target and that is on purpose. And that's so that no one can ever reach it. And that keeps us consumers for life. Um, and then especially again with the Kardashians, but we're seeing it throughout the entire beauty industry. So much of today's standard is about co-opting features from other ethnicities and grafting them onto white bodies. It is colonialism of the body. So we're seeing, you know, people like Kim Kardashian uh, getting lip injections, getting um, Brazilian butt lifts, stealing features that are normally associated with Black women or Latina women and grafting them onto their own bodies, creating a new standard of beauty, profiting off of that um, and harming all of the communities that they are that they are stealing from in the process. Um, so I think that's really important to point out. And that is a huge foundational 
um, problem with beauty culture. Right. Um, one of our interns here at Connecticut Public uh, highlighted an article about the fox eye trend. This was something that Teen mm-hmm. Vogue wrote about a couple of years ago, where primarily white women would create a makeup look that gives their eyes a slanted, upturned look. But the irony was not lost on the Asian American community. They called it out for what it was, another instance of mainstream beauty standards plagiarizing from other cultures, and we know that slanted eyes have historically been one of the most common insults used against Asian people, Jessica. Yes, exactly. Um, That is a perfect and, you know, terrible example of, of cultural appropriation that happens in beauty all of the time. And I think the fox eye makes a great case for the fact that, you know, when, when it's white women who are, who are adopting this feature, it's praised as beautiful, but that hasn't translated to more acceptance in the Asian community. Like, in fact, we are seeing um, violence and discrimination against Asian Americans um, on the rise. And we have been seeing that for the past two years, um, particularly. So I think it's really tempting sometimes for people to make a bad faith argument and say, oh, it's fine to co-opt these features because it's normalizing them. It's making them beautiful. It's expanding the standard of beauty. Um, But in practice, it doesn't actually ever help the community that these features are being co-opted from. It actually further harms the community. Um, and, And again, creates a standard of beauty that is not achievable for anyone. You're hearing Jessica DeFino here on Where We Live. She's a freelance beauty journalist who writes the unpublishable newsletter. Definitely check it out. It's the beauty industry's least favorite newsletter, taking a beauty critical look at the industry. If you're waiting to join our conversation, keep holding. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're taking a critical look at the beauty industry from a freelance journalist, Jessica DeFino, who writes the unpublishable newsletter, the beauty industry's least favorite newsletter. Now, what questions or comments do you have? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I wanted to actually mention, uh, Jessica, I saw a tweet that you put out recently. I don't want skincare products that help me look my best at any age. I want my innate humanity recognized when I look my worst. What were you responding to? I recently got in a PR pitch. I mean, as a beauty reporter, I am on the receiving end of probably close to a thousand emails a day, mostly from beauty, public relations and marketing people trying to get me to cover a particular product. Um, And something that I've been noticing a lot is the beauty industry has started adopting Um, a pro-aging, in quotation marks, pro-aging mindset. They're trying to get away from this idea of anti-aging because they don't want to be negative anymore. They want to seem that they're pro-aging, they're accepting, they're inclusive. Um, But what really bothers me about it is that they're using all of this accepting language to sell products that do the same thing as typical anti-aging products. Um, So the other day I got a press release for a brand that was like, this will help you look your best at any age um, by reducing fine lines and wrinkles. And to me, that's just like, that's uh, the problem with beauty culture is that we focus on 
telling women how to look better in order to deal with a culture that doesn't appreciate them if they don't look beautiful, instead of focusing on how to change the culture so that women are treated with respect and dignity no matter what they look like. Like, I don't want to put effort in to look better. I want you to treat me like a human being when I don't look good, you know, quote unquote good. Do you think that attitudes around aging um, have been evolving in the sense of, you know, maybe not needing to you have certain makeup on uh, to embrace, uh, you know, uh, your your age spots or maybe if you have a few wrinkles? I mean, I'm just wondering if you can talk about that or do we still see a lot of toxicity where you have to look young all the time? I think that there has been maybe an increase in imagery that celebrates aging women, women getting older, and there has been an increase in, like I said, positive language. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, I saw a campaign from a beauty brand the other day, and their whole campaign was about celebrating your age. And they had models of all different ages from, you know, 20s to probably 70s um, in And they showed a wide range of people and they were celebrating that beauty and they said, celebrate your fine lines. Um, But then again, when you click through to the product they're selling, the product page says, this product will help you address fine lines and eliminate wrinkles. So I think we're seeing this sort of surface level acknowledgement that ageism is not okay and the beauty industry needs to change. But the industry hasn't put that into practice in terms of the products that they're selling. Um, So it's a very like layered and complicated issue. You mentioned beauty culture. There's also beauty culture brain, which you've written about Mm -hmm. as harmful as eating disorders, Jessica. Yes, I, I mean, so I think a great comparison is to compare beauty culture to diet culture. I think in the past five to 10 years, there has been a huge focus on diet culture and how harmful it is. Diet culture, of course, being the messages that we get Um, from the culture, from the media, from um, laws and policies, from the government, from our social circles, that being thinner is better, to be thin is the goal. Um, And we've seen how that's actually a very harmful ideal that's not rooted in health, but often rooted in racism, in misogyny, in control. Beauty culture is the same way. So we have a culture all around us that is feeding us messages that say, beautiful is the most important thing you can be. When you are beautiful, you will be worthy. And we even see that with like positive messaging that says everybody's beautiful or because you're worth it. It still sends the message that you have to look and feel beautiful. And what that does to our brains is it makes us ignore common sense in the pursuit of beauty because we think this is the most important thing. Um, So I think what we were talking about earlier with Kim Kardashian saying she would eat poop to look younger, that's a classic case of beauty culture brain. Beauty culture has clearly warped her sense of what is reasonable and what is common sense in pursuit of this ideal. So given what you've shared about, you know, the obsession with looking a certain way and, and who's influencing uh, these kinds of, of decisions about product and how women are expected to look, you know, how has that impacted the rise of injectables and plastic surgery, Jessica? Sure. Well, we see injectables and plastic surgery are on the rise. They are happening in record numbers. So I think the pressure to adhere to this ideal has obviously increased 
um, especially over the past couple of years where we're living more um, virtual digital lives with the pandemic. We weren't going out as much. We weren't seeing other people in real life. And so I think a lot of us have started comparing what we look like in the mirror as, you know, three-dimensional human beings in real life to the images that we see, which are one-dimensional, flattened, photoshopped, facetuned, filtered. And we think this is what beautiful is and take those steps to try and make ourselves look as close as we can to a photoshopped image, um, which again is not realistic or even achievable, but it has contributed to this huge rise in injectable and plastic surgery procedures. And who are the people getting these procedures? Obviously, cost is a factor, but are you seeing younger people feeling the need to have Botox in their 20s? Yes, yes. Um, we are seeing a huge increase in um, young 20-somethings pursuing these procedures. Um, preventative Botox uh, has been has been a huge selling point for the industry, selling you this idea that if you get Botox earlier, you won't get wrinkles and you'll never have to deal with wrinkles, um, which is of course uh, a classic case of beauty culture brain. <laughs> That's not real. <laughs> so we're seeing younger and younger people um, getting these procedures. And we're also seeing um, people of different different socioeconomic statuses getting these procedures. We're seeing people who don't actually have a ton of extra money to spend um, scrimping and saving in order to invest in their appearance um, because they believe that this is what you have to do in order to be beautiful, in order to feel worthy, in order, like I said, to be treated with respect in society because, because beauty does translate to, to better treatment in our culture currently. Um, so we're, we're seeing people of all ages and all socioeconomic backgrounds really investing in, in beauty. So how does that impact a person long-term? If you're thinking about you know preventative Botox in your 20s, what does that do uh, mm -hmm. to a person when we talked about all the products doing damage to our skin? Sure, I think I personally like to focus on the long-term effects psychologically when we're talking about Botox and surgeries, because to me, that is the more harmful aspect of it. So we have research to show that these procedures actually have an addictive quality. Cosmetic procedures can be addictive. Um, and it's tempting to think that, oh, I'm going to get Botox and I'm going to feel better about myself. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop. I won't need as many products. I won't need another procedure because this is my this is my problem and I'll fix it. But what actually happens is that once we have the procedure, we start to look at ourselves more critically and we say, well, what else can I fix? What else is wrong with me? Um, and it really starts down a path of procedure after procedure and not feeling satisfied with ourselves ever. Um, and of course, some of these procedures and a lot of these surgeries do have potential physical risks and physical complications, sometimes even death. Um, the Brazilian butt lift is a surgery that's very popular right now. Um, and that is one of the riskiest procedures that is currently available. Um, so there, there's, there are layers to the psychological and physical harm of being sucked into this cycle of constantly getting procedure after procedure after procedure.
My guest today is Jessica Defino, writer of the Unpublishable Newsletter. She's going to stay with us, and after the break, we'll talk about this rise in cosmetic surgeries and hear from a Yale professor who researches this from the lens of race and medicine. First, it's Connecticut Public's end of the fiscal year campaign. Have you supported Connecticut Public with a pledge? Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the beauty industry with my guest, Jessica Defino, a freelance beauty journalist, writer of the unpublishable newsletter, The Beauty Industry's Least Favorite Newsletter. Now, earlier we talked about cosmetic surgery, and the American Academy of Facial, Plastic, and Reconstructive Surgery says treatments rose dramatically in 2021, with an estimated 1.4 million procedures completed, and plastic surgeons performed an average of 600 more procedures than they did in 2020, a 40% increase. The most common procedures included rhinoplasty and facelift, but demand for non-surgical treatments grew as well. My next guest researches race, medicine, and markets, and is currently working on a book about cosmetic surgery, focusing on the multi-ethnic cases of the U.S. and Malaysia. Alka Menon is an assistant professor of sociology at Yale University. Alka, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us about your research when we think about race and cosmetic surgery. So my research uses cosmetic surgery as a case for thinking about a different way that race can appear in medicine. A lot of attention more recently has focused in the last year, 10 years or 20 years has focused on how different genomic and genetic understandings in medicine uh, use racial categories that we recognize from the social or political sphere um, to come up with new kinds of interventions and um, new definitions of race. But what I found really interesting about cosmetic surgery is that surgeons claim a kind of social expertise too, and a cultural expertise uh, in what matters about and to members of different racial groups. So my research involves interviews with cosmetic surgeons and patients in in settings around the United States, as well as in Malaysia, to capture these different textures of both physical appearance and cultural meanings of race. And what did you find in your research with Malaysia and how uh, these different plastic surgeries are pursued? So in the context of Malaysia in particular, um, which is a a smaller, about 30 million in population country uh, in Southeast Asia, I found that cosmetic surgeons acted as sort of gatekeepers or translators of globally circulating beauty standards that would be recognized from popular media accounts in Uh, things like Bollywood movies or Korean pop bands um, to the local setting in Malaysia. So Malaysian cosmetic surgery um, has a domestic market. There are people who seek it from the uh, locally residing racial groups, which include Malaysian Chinese, Malaysian Indian, and Malays. Um, But they also have a reasonably robust medical tourist market from surrounding Asian countries and from New Zealand and Australia as well. And so Malaysian cosmetic surgeons would take these beauty ideals that patients came in requesting or that they themselves encountered through popular media sources and figured out how to and whether to translate them onto the bodies of these very different kinds of patients, different ages, different racial groups, um, and with different concerns about Botox relative to other kinds of uh, surgical interventions. Mm. 
Uh, I definitely want to hear more about the, the medical tourism aspect that you mentioned. But when we think about uh, who is getting plastic surgery, you know, in this country, there's almost a, a level of prestige when you uh, are able to get plastic surgery. It's expensive. I'm wondering what you found, Alka. Yeah, so I think that historically, this was cosmetic surgery was something that was primarily accessible to people with disposable income. Uh, now, because of competition, because a lot of people in the space, because of the rise of more minimally invasive procedures like neuromodulators, like Botox or fillers, the prices have become more accessible to a broader range of people. And so what is increasingly happening is the proliferation of different kinds of aesthetic ideals that people of different socioeconomic statuses can display, right? So it can be a form of conspicuous consumption of, if you get something particularly noticeable or obvious so that you're signaling to, to the world that you've had some work done. But for other people, there's there's a premium put on natural looks, on tweaking things without anybody knowing that surgery has been done. Uh, our guest, Jessica Defino mentioned the addictive nature of, of these co cosmetic procedures. Is that something that your research also uh, uh, has found? So my research focuses a little bit more on cosmetic surgeons and that side of things. And so they, that's, I encounter it primarily insofar as they are uh, cognizant and concerned about it. And certainly among board certified facial plastic and plastic surgeons, there was an awareness that this was a concern and that they were both depending on some amount of return customers for business, right? Cosmetic surgery is uh, a totally elective procedure that people are doing to enhance their appearance or feel better about themselves. And so there's not necessarily a clear line for an individual patient on, you know, a one and done sort of thing. It's once you do it, as Jessica mentioned, uh, you might have an orientation to thinking about pursuing more procedures in the future as your body changes or as ideals change. Mm -hmm. um, but surgeons also want to make sure that they have a satisfied customer at the end of the day, because patient satisfaction is ultimately the end result. That's the only thing that uh, matters. And of course, the safety and health of the patient afterwards. And so, you know, if, if a surgeon thinks that uh, a patient is presenting with concerns that are unlikely to be addressed by their services, they're reluctant to operate because they don't want an unhappy patient afterwards who is going to uh, keep coming back and asking, you know, for more tweaks or write a bad online review about them. You know, they do ultimately say that they're operating on happiness. And so they're trying to evaluate from the outset, is that something that can be affected here? Um, and over what period of time is it likely to last? When we think about the ideals, what are the ideals, the types of surgeries that people are seeking out, whether in, in Malaysia or even uh, the medical uh, surgery, tourism, uh, the people that are coming from overseas to get particular procedures, Alka? So this is something that varies a little bit by country. And nose jobs or rhinoplasties are popular uh, in, in usually the top three in countries around the world. Um, so the face is a very important area. Uh, in the United States, breast augmentations are the most popular or common uh, surgical procedure that people seek. Uh, their lip liposuction is also very popular in the United States, which is the procedure that removes fat. Um, sometimes it's combined with fat transfer, which uh, means that the fat removed is put on another part of the body, often to emphasize a curvier feature. So these are some of the procedures that, that we see. In Malaysia, in addition, um, there is some popularity of the eyelid procedure. 
to create the appearance of a double eyelid in, in people who have a single eyelid fold. Mm. Uh, earlier, we talked about, you know, the appropriating from certain cultures to look a certain way and, you know, the stigma that is also attached to particular um, features. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that as, as a stigma lessening. So I think that there's certainly been a proliferation of beauty standards, um, in part as media cultures have also diversified and more kinds of representations of ideal appearances have made it to the fore. And that happens both in the context of traditional media, in terms of movies, magazines, um, and in terms of social media, where there's all these influencers who are generating content themselves and trying to create a niche for themselves and smaller followings that way. So I don't think we have the same extent of this one single mass culture with one single uh, standard of beauty, which in the United States was a kind of magazine, glossy, airbrushed, white, feminine, middle-class beauty to some extent, you know, with changes because these the, the trend is important here. So I think that now there are potentially competing standards. We see the rise of things like the Brazilian butt lift. We see a more premium on curvier figures, bigger lips, um, in addition to a premium on thinness, right? These things are coexisting. I don't think that uh, the the older norm has totally vanished either. Okay. So there's what we can think about is who benefits from different kinds of ideals of beauty and then who are they being marketed towards? Is this about expanding uh, the footprint of cosmetic surgery or other beauty products. Jessica Defino is still with us, who's a beauty journalist. Jessica, I wonder if you can respond to what Alka has shared with us, especially that question about, you know, the addictiveness uh, of these types of surgeries, you know, seeing the body as more malleable. And so if you get something uh, that you like that look, you know, the tendency to maybe, you know, keep uh, trying more uh, surgeries to look a certain way. Sure. I have interviewed a bunch of plastic surgeons and cosmetic injectors over the course of my reporting career. And they do mention um, what Alka mentioned of being concerned and screening patients for what's um, known as body dysmorphic disorder, which is considered like a mental disorder of not being able to see your body clearly and wanting to change it and always finding a flaw. Um, what I've noticed more anecdotally in my reporting when I am interviewing real people who are getting these procedures um, or real customers of the beauty industry is that I think I think we are underestimating um, how widespread this body dysmorphic or facial dysmorphic mindset is becoming um, just based on the, the input that we're getting from social media, the use of filters and Facetune and Photoshop creating unrealistic expectations. Um, and I think this mindset is more widespread than has been recognized by the medical community. Um, and I think the need, this like almost insatiable need to keep improving the appearance um, because of the prevalence of beauty culture is almost considered normal. Like it's not flagged as an issue because of course you want to appear more beautiful. Of course you want smoother skin. Of course you don't want wrinkles. That's what the culture is telling you is beautiful. Um, so it's not necessarily flagged as a concern in most patients is my worry. 
Oh, we just have a two minutes left, but Jessica, I wanted to ask you when we think about how the beauty uh, industry might even uh, co-opt the term self-care, you know, promoting yeah. all of these different procedures and makeups and products because you need to take care of yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I always like to say um, your surface is not yourself. It's a portion of yourself, but beauty, the beauty industry is very invested in making us believe that tending to our surface is tending to ourself. Um, and we are actually caring for our physical selves at the expense of our emotional and mental health currently, in my opinion. Um, and I think we need to expand the understanding of what the self is and understand that beauty is not self-care, it's surface care, it's ego care. That's Jessica Defino, a freelance beauty journalist, writer of the Unpublishable newsletter. Pleasure to hear from you, Jessica. Thank you for your work. Thank you so much for having me. And Alka Menon was also here, assistant professor of sociology at Yale University, writing a, a book on cosmetic surgery and looking at cases in the U.S. and Malaysia. Alka, thank you for your time today. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, Test Terrible produced today's show. Before you head off to start the rest of your day, if you haven't supported Connecticut Public, please do so now with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. <laughs>